Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to Signposts. Here on Signposts, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen as I talk to thinkers and leaders on a whole range of issues. And I'm sometimes surprised where those conversations go. As always, we're looking for what Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because it's with my friend Sam Alberry. Uh, he and I are, are always having conversations in real life, and I'm hoping to bring uh, those conversations uh, with y'all right now. And uh, Sam, welcome to Signposts. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. For those of you who aren't familiar with Sam Alberry, he is uh, one of the pastors at Emmanuel Church in Nashville. Uh, he is a, a very well-recognized author, having written uh, multiple books. And he has a new book uh, coming out called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves, published by Crossway. Uh, Sam, you know, when I think about this book, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading it is how much has changed uh, over the past year or so in terms of how we experience our physical uh, selves uh, with the COVID pandemic, things that we just wouldn't have imagined that we would have to be uh, dealing with, both in terms of uh, masking up and staying socially distant and trying to find a way to do services and events, um, but also some of the things that have come along with Zoom and with the, the technologies that have gotten us through uh, through the, the pandemic in the past uh, few uh, days. And there have been, been people fired because uh, they did bad things on, on Zoom accidentally. There was uh, – I saw a city councilman uh, somewhere uh, just yesterday who was uh, in a hearing about distracted driving, and it turns out he was driving – but put a filter on to make it look like he was at home in front of the fireplace. Like you don't wear a seatbelt at home, you know, in front of the fireplace. So that, that <laughs> gave it away. And for everybody else, it's just been fatiguing, I think, in, in many ways. How do you see the way that this sort of uh, pressure from the pandemic and this sort of digital reality we have affecting our bodies? Yeah, it's been a new, I mean, we've used the phrase new normal far too much over the last 12 months, but um, we have had to just work and live in a different way. And, you know, I, I got to about, I think, August of 2020 before I needed to go and see someone about my back because I was just having lots of back pain. And the physio I spoke to said, well, actually, we're having so many people coming in because everyone is working from home. Everyone is hunched over a dining table on a laptop 
And if you do that for several hours a day, you're going to have a bad back. So from, just from that point of view, um, that doesn't help. Um, but again, I, you know, with, with Zoom, it's a different way of relating. It's It's been a blessing in many ways. Um, we've been able to do some work, at least, from home. But I think we're all realising that there is something you you miss when you're not face-to-face with someone in, in flesh. And I hope coming out of this, we will have a, a new sense of appreciation just for being physically in the same room as one another and being able to do things in person that we had been doing via screens. And, you know, for every every kind of Zoom thing where, you know, that, that guy who accidentally had the cat filter on and couldn't switch it off in the, in the middle of a court case... For every one of those, there are, you know, just people who are getting very, as you say, very fatigued with having to to stare at pixels all day. And it's it's a form of interaction, but it's it's not what we're ultimately designed for. It's a way of making do, but it's certainly not what we would want to have to to get used to in the long term. Well, something that you've written about before and and spoken about before, uh, singleness and uh, the issues that come along with that for the church, how do you think uh, single people, whether not married uh, ever or people who are maybe um, widowed or or divorced or but are are living alone, how do you think they've experienced this past year differently in terms of uh, relationship? Yeah, there's been a huge difference, I think. Just talking to people at, at church here, um, I mean, it's not been easy for, for many people. For some people, it's it's not been too too difficult. But for, for most single people, it seems to have been particularly difficult simply because you don't necessarily, if you're living alone, you don't have that built-in micro-community that you would have if you were living with a, a spouse or with, with family. Um, so it's been more isolating. And depending on where you are and how severe the restrictions have been. You know, I, had, I had friends of mine in the UK who were single who were having to literally live in their apartment on their own for several weeks. Um, and, you know, they they would Zoom people, they would Skype people. You might be able to go for a, a socially distanced walk with someone. But um, to be that isolated is, is difficult. Um, and it's interesting at church now, as people are emerging from all of this, the state in which people are emerging is is very different. Some families are kind of happy and, you know, energized and we've had a great time huddled up together. We're looking forward to seeing everyone and we're excited. Whereas I know some single people who are actually limping out of this whole pandemic and, you know, there's been mental health issues. It's, they're having to learn how to be around other people again. So I think it's it's shown us how how significant our living arrangements can be. Um, I, I was fortunate enough not to be living on my own really during the pandemic. I was either staying with a, another family in the UK or when I was over here, had other people in the house staying with me. Um, I know I would have found it much, much harder on our own, on my own. So I think it's an opportunity for us just to think through, you know, are there, are there creative ways as churches we can help people be less isolated in the way that they live, not just for when there's a pandemic, but just in in general, hmm. I want to I want to get to some of the specifics of what you talk about uh, in this book in in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about kind of the broad theme of uh, the gospel being applied to our bodies. And one of the things I thought I've thought about this book, uh, having read it 
a while back uh, and then rereading it for this uh, conversation, someone sent me a tweet from uh, Jacob Den Hollander, a uh, doctoral student at, uh, at Southern Seminary, who uh, was linking to and, and talking about how, how dangerous, rightly so, how dangerous this was, uh, a handout that had uh, been given out from a ministry uh, several years ago to survivors of, of sexual abuse. And there were all sorts of atrocious things and and really, uh, I would say, spiritually abusive things in that document. But it started off with these concentric circles that said, uh, you know, your your soul is in the middle. That's the most important. And it worked its way out to the body and said, that's what's, that's what's least important. And then the application of that was to say, whatever's been done to you, it was just done to the least important uh, part of you. And I mean, I said, this is, this is wickedness just morally, but it also is horrific theology. Is this is this one of the things that you're seeking to to combat? Is the way that it's not just that I think some people think, oh well, you just don't get the full picture if you don't understand the body. But if you don't understand the body, you can end up hurting people at the at the deepest levels of themselves. Yeah, I think it's very very significant what we're seeing reflected in that handout, and it's we're seeing this all over our, our kind of Western culture as well. Is is this anthropology that says the real you is the is the inner self, the soul, the whoever it is you feel yourself to be. That's the real you. The body is simply the container um, for so many people and not really where the action is. So it's not entirely relevant, but at the same time, it's peripheral and incidental. And the Bible just gives us a very, very different understanding. I mean, you think of how Adam is created in Genesis 2. God didn't create a soul called Adam and then look for for a you know physical container to put him in. Um, God took the dust from the ground and and formed Adam's body and then breathed life into it. So Adam is animated flesh. He is not an imprisoned soul. So if we if we come with the mentality that the soul is the real me and the body is somewhere to the periphery, we simply won't understand who we are as as integrated human beings. Our, our bodies are far more theologically significant than that. And what is done to the body is not just done to to my property. If you you know if you crash into my car and damage it, you're damaging my property. But if you damage my body, you are damaging me. And we're meant to be a an integrated unity of of body and spirit and mind and heart. And for that unity to work, we have to recognize that actually what is done to us physically is going to affect us, is going to affect me in every respect. Um, so it's interesting. I think we've, we've had two big cultural things happen in the last several years. We've had the Me Too movement and then we've had COVID. And I think both have shown us actually we cannot relativize our physicality. Uh, we, we just cannot make it incidental to, to the real heart of what, what it means to be human. Well, and I would add to that uh, one of the big cultural moments that we have had, uh, at least within the church, are really high-profile scandals uh, that have taken place. And it seems to me, I mean, I, I don't, you know, nobody can know exactly what what all the stories people are telling to themselves on the inside. But it seems to me that what a lot of people do 
is to uh, start to assume that what's happening with their own bodies as related to other people is not really me. This is, this is sort of peripheral, and what, who I really am is this intellect, or who I really am are these, you know, these ministries or whatever. You were on the staff for a long time with Ravi Zacharias uh, International Ministries. You courageously uh, stood in the middle of, um, of the revelations that came out uh, about Ravi. And you know, I guess one of the questions I have for you is, what does that feel like? I mean, especially when we have so many people right now who are having a crisis because they're seeing people they trusted turn out to be not who they thought they were. Um, what does it feel like to be working in a ministry like that and then have to stand up and say the things that you had to say? I think for obviously there's there's a whole range of if, range of emotions. There's the the kind of bewilderment and disorientation to begin with, um, and then there's 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 a lot of anguish. I think anguish was probably the thing I felt the most. Um, anguish about who was he then? Who are we now? Um, what are we doing about this? Are we are we being the good guys? Are we being the bad guys? Um, and it, you know, I I kept oscillating between thinking that the people who I've been working for are, are all people I've seen up close and have learned from and admired and have become friends with, and yet at the same time there seem to be organisational failings and ongoing missteps in how this is being handled. So. It was it was confusing and, and painful, and it, it's hard when it's people you know because it's really hard to be objective and to step back from the the natural affection and friendship and to think, are, are we doing things in the right way here? Um, there's the whole phenomenon of, of you know betrayal blindness. You're just less likely to see the wrongs that are closest to you. So um, it certainly helped to have others to to talk it through with and people outside the ministry to talk it through with who, who might be a bit more objective. That, I think, helped sort of anchor my own perspective somewhat. And how do you not lose confidence in Jesus? Well, actually, the, the thing I kept thinking throughout this was what a relief it is that we will never discover a hidden side to Jesus, mm. some mm-hmm. some ugly thing in Jesus that he'd never let us know about before. That There's always a measure of risk with that. Um, with any With any human being, we can all end up letting each other down. So I kept nestling really in that in that truth that actually I'm seeing how unlike us in the right way Jesus is. Um, we, we don't ever have to have that worry with him. Um, and the very things that, that show us the failings of, of Christian leaders are, you know, the, the standards Jesus himself has given us. Um, if, if anything... The scandal around Ravi gave me more reason to trust Jesus, not less, and actually more reason to trust the gospel and to to seek its promotion. You know, I think when when most people uh, hear that the book is what God has to say about our bodies, at, at least maybe most evangelical Christians, they'll assume, okay, well, this is a this is a book all about sex, <laughs> and uh, and there is uh, some uh, a lot of material in here on sex, but it's it's a lot broader than that, and that's only one part of it that you're dealing with. But one of the things that strikes me when we're thinking about 
these issues of maleness and femaleness and, and sexuality and so forth. I've really been thinking a lot, especially after the chilling uh, murder uh, that took place in Atlanta uh, of uh, women who uh, who worked in um, in massage uh, outlets there. From at least some of the reports, uh, this murderer was saying he's responding to temptation. Now, obviously, you look at that and say that's not what most people do, but it does bring up a problem that a lot of our sisters have been bringing up for a long time, which is to say sometimes in the way that we warn people about immorality, as the Bible does, we end up giving either explicitly or implicitly the idea that women are the problem, and specifically because of their bodies, their their sources of temptation, and they're responsible for men, not lusting after them and and so forth. How do you think that we can, uh, you know, and a lot of that I think has to do not so much with separating soul from body, but as as having the wrong sort of emphasis on the body. So you can you can have people who will say, well, men have testosterone and that means that Essentially, they're just uncontrollable uh, beasts, and uh, women are, are are here to rein them in, or or, or uh, whatever. How do we communicate those things better? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think there are several things we can we can say to that. Um, you know, James one shows me that my temptations come from within, and so I can't I can't pin my temptations on on external things and say, well, it's those people's fault or it's, you know, God's fault. I have to recognize that I'm tempted by my own fallen desires. And so that's where most of my work needs to take place. Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 6 that we need to to flee from sexual immorality. So sometimes that may well involve removing ourselves from certain contexts where we feel there's going to be heightened temptation. But in terms of the real fight for purity, we're, we're called to be self-controlled. Self-control is, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. There is every Christian man is called to exercise self-control. And a failure to do so is never someone else's fault. Um, that's always our own fault because we're responsible for, for walking in step with the Spirit on this. And what is so perverted about what happened in Atlanta is the putting to death that is required by our fighting sin is is putting to death what is within us, not what is outside of us. And putting that to death through spiritual means. Yeah, so Paul says in Romans 8, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. In other words, you, we, we've got to kill the, the sinful nature and sinful impulses within us. Um, so that the bat, there is a battle to, to fight, but it's internal far more than it's external. There may be times when we need to step back from certain situations or avoid certain places or whatever it might be. But that's not where the battle is. The battle is is within our own hearts and minds. And I think one of the problems is if, you know, we do have testosterone, we do have sexual energy, and it is all deeply affected by the fall. Um, and if we if we feed our sinful desires and our sinful temptations, then we will be making them more powerful. So if, if we, you know, if we get to the point where we do become uncontrollable, then again, that's because of us. That's not because of someone else. And certainly not because of God. This is just the way 
men are. This is just the way women are. Yes. No, we, we cannot say, well, God's made men basically with these massive urges and everyone else has got to tiptoe around them and, and kind of accommodate them. That is not the message of the Bible. God, we do have powerful urges within us. And part of what it means to to grow in our being men of, of God is to is to learn how to resist temptation, how to exercise self-control, how to carry ourselves and to how to carry those those forces within us in a way that will be constructive and not destructive. Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode in part by Midwestern Seminary. We exist to train ministry leaders for the church. Are you called to ministry? Throughout the month of March, Midwestern Seminary is giving away free resources and content to equip you to pursue your calling for the church. Your calling is too important to pursue unprepared. So we want to resource you with helpful books and articles, scholarships to seminary, commentary sets, a logos package, and more. Enter to win these giveaways at mbts.edu slash called out. Everyone who enters will receive free ebooks during the month of March as well. You know, one of the things that I think I noticed early on in, in working in local church ministry, and I think has in some ways intensified over the years, is how many people that you would find who were having uh, difficulties with anorexia and bulimia in ways that no one would know about. It's, it's not anything that's asked. No one asks a prayer request for that. No one really talks about it much from pulpits or so forth. But there's a lot of hurt coming with those those sorts of uh, disorders happening within churches. How can a, a biblical view of our bodies help us when it comes to, to, to those ways of seeing ourselves? It's so important. I've, I've been working on this area for sort of about four years, really. And as, as it's come up in conversations and I've talked about how we think about our bodies, how the Bible thinks about our bodies, I mean, I knew there were massive issues of, of anorexia and eating disorders and the like out there, but it, it's really come home to me just how widespread those things are. Um, among many men, I mean, I do, you know, virtually all of my pastoral engagement is with men rather than women. And, you know, it's the variety and um, amount of guys who are, are wrestling with this is is very significant. But again, we, we 
the the Bible doesn't make those things go away. It, it doesn't make those things suddenly easy, but it, it does give us a healthier framework for how to understand ourselves. And one of the areas I think for me was a bit of a revelation was just thinking through, well, Paul says that we were bought at a price. Uh, we're not our own, so we're to honour God with our bodies. Um, so my my body has been bought by the blood of Christ. He hasn't just come for my my soul, he's come for my body. And if Jesus is now the one to whom I belong physically, then Jesus is the one and the only one actually to whom my body needs to be pleasing. And that, that's been a big kind of eye-opening thing for me, just thinking through that and how we're always living for someone. We're always trying to please someone, whether it's particular people around us or our culture or whatever it might be. And it will only be actually in, in living to please Jesus with our bodies that we will find true freedom. And the body that is pleasing to Jesus isn't necessarily the body that you see on the billboards by the interstate or on the movie posters. It's the body that's consecrated to him. And it doesn't matter what size and proportion our bodies happen to be if we're seeking, as Paul says in Romans 6, to offer the parts of our body to God as instruments of righteousness, then actually we know that that is a way that our bodies can be pleasing to him. So I hope understanding what, what Jesus thinks of our physicality will help us as we wrestle with our own perception of it and with other people's perception of it. I was really glad that you have uh, an entire section in this book on the body as it relates to shame, and and especially because once once you get into the the content of that section, I think most people, if they just saw it in the table of contents, they would assume, well, this is talking about sex, sexuality, sexual temptation, and so forth. That's what he means by shame, and of course, that that's a subset of it. But you spent a lot of time talking about the shame of frailty. Uh, and I think even at one point uh, referencing Michael J. Fox and uh, the Parkinson's disease that that he's had. And as you were saying that, I thought, you know, this is exactly right, because it seems to me that a lot of the places where I see shame are with Christians who are getting older, their bodies are starting to fail them, and they're starting to have to be dependent on uh, on someone else. And I even heard someone say not long ago, oh, I hope that I don't live to be sick and Alzheimer's disease and someone have to take care of me. And I understand there's a certain amount of nobility in that, not wanting to put anybody through any trouble. But that's but there's also a sense of where there's kind of a pride that we have. I don't want to be seen weak and in need. How can we get around that? Yeah, it's... um. It's it's very common. I've heard many people say something similar to what you just articulated, and I can feel it within myself. I'm, I'm part of me things. I don't, I don't want to be living <laughs> to you know my late nineties and just being a, a you know a, a burden and a pain to everybody else. So I think there's there's lots of things we need to think through with that. I mean, one thing is simply that the obviously the aging process, in one sense, can be humiliating. Um, we we lose some of the areas of physical control that we once had it it sort of feels like we're reverting back to you know how we were as as toddlers as babies as you know needing other people and, and not being able to look after ourselves but there's there's something healthy about about being dependent um 
if that's what the Lord has for us, if if he calls us to, you know, old age where there, there may be many years of that, we have to presume it's because he's, you know, he's reminding us of of just how frail we are before him. All, all flesh will fail. Um, so there's there's something good about actually having to live in our our physical weakness and all the constraints and contingencies that come with that. And that actually to have to need other people is, again, it's no bad thing for us. It's it's embarrassing, but it's probably spiritually healthy because it simply reminds us through, through the physical realm of what is always true in the spiritual realm. And it may be in our, you know, the, the middle of life where we, we are most independent, that perhaps we're most in danger of forgetting how spiritually dependent we are on God and maybe the encroaching physical dependencies of older age are one of his ways of reminding us of that. I, I want to test a, a thesis on you that has to do with the body that's been a major concern of mine for a while. And that's the loss of the physical in terms of worship. And I mean corporate uh, gathered worship. Uh, and I'm not just talking about sort of the differences between more higher liturgies and lower liturgies and higher churches and lower churches. I mean, I mean even, even in somebody who grew up in a very low church, free church uh, a sort of place, there was an invitation at the end of the service in which people were walking forward, not just to profess faith in Christ, but also to go and physically kneel uh, at the front of the church and to pray. And I know all the critiques that that some people would have of that. It can be manipulated, whatever, yes. But I think we've really lost something um, from being able to physically find ourselves kneeling together and to see, I think all the time of seeing someone kneeling in the, on the steps at the front of the church, there's a kind of, you know, there can be a, a, an abuse of that as with anything else, and there can be a kind of theatricality to it, sure. But there also can be a sense of the entire body starts to pray for this person, and you can see someone come up and kneel down with that person and put an arm around that person. And you, you don't see that much anymore. I think I think we've lost that in terms of how our bodies interact. Uh, do, do you think that I'm off base there? No, not at all. In fact, you know, my, my background is, is in Anglican churches, most of which would have been pretty low churches in terms of not having lots of liturgy and incense and robes and those things. But one of the things I've really missed being being more in America now is I miss kneeling at the communion rail. So in, in typical Anglican churches back where I come from, you would go to the front for communion, you'd you'd kneel at the communion rail, you'd you'd lift up your hands and you'd bow your head. And the the elements would be put into your hand, the, the cup would be put into your hand. And there's something about that posture that I think just I found so spiritually helpful at the very point when I was taking communion because it's it's such a a gospel shaped posture. You're, you're on your knees with your head bowed, but with your hands open, ready to receive. And even adopting that posture is telling me this is how I am spiritually before the Lord. I'm I'm humbled before Him, reverent before Him, and yet receiving from Him. Um, so even that moment in the service, I, I now miss. Um, many of the churches I was 
at in the UK Anglican churches, you would have kneelers as part of the pew. So if you wanted to kneel to pray, you didn't have to walk to the front of the church. You could kneel right where you were. There were kneelers at the First Baptist Church of Dallas for many years, which I think people would find surprising. Hmm. And I think we've we've lost something in that. I mean, yeah. I think yeah. we're more we're more physically self conscious now, which means we are actually probably doing less. There's less physicality to our corporate worship than there than there used to be, and that we have lost something there. If if previous centuries had kneelers and we're the sort of first generation not to, it's probably wise to think. Well, what what did they see that I'm not seeing? Yeah, yeah. You, you talk about in the book um, stewardship uh, of the body, and there are so many issues uh, that are related to um, the, the things that we put into the body, the way that we uh, treat the body in terms of gluttony or exercise or smoking or, or, or all of these different things. How do we hold one another accountable for stewardship of the body without violating a Romans 14 uh, a sort of, of principle and, and, and start to get legalistic with one another or uh, to start to see one person's way of stewarding it as being better than the other. How, how, how can we get that balance? Yeah, my sense is I don't think many of us talk about that at all. So even starting to talk about it would, would, would help. Um, I know with the, with the two guys I meet to pray with once a week and we we will try to be transparent with one another. You know, at least two of us have talked about we want to be more self-disciplined with, with what we eat and how much we eat and, and that kind of thing and to sort of ask for each each other to help us with that. Um, I think that's that's appropriate and right. Um, I think we, we don't want to be prescriptive and um, to say that, you know, if you, if you eat a burger at McDonald's, you are sinning. Um, but we do want to just encourage people to be to be wise. Um, so, helping each, you know, is, as we see how as we see need, helping one another to to be a bit more self controlled with exercise, with with what we eat and how much we eat, is a loving thing to do. Provided we're not doing it in a self righteous and kind of invasive. <laughs> as long as we're not being a jerk about it, I think we can help each other here. And it, you know, culture can be at times quite imperious about what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat. Um, so we don't want to go down that route of sort of making people feeling guilty because we're, we're told that things are to be received with, with joy and thanksgiving. And, you know, it's amazing that the feasts in the Bible didn't look very healthy to me. Um, so we want to enjoy the, the gifts of creation that God has given us, but we also want to steward our, our health well. And so if I only ever eat the stuff that tastes nicest, um, I'm not actually going to be stewarding my body well. I do need to sort of exercise self-control there. Yeah, the feasts of the Bible on their own don't look very healthy. The fasts of the Bible on their own don't, don't look very healthy. <laughs> but when you look at the full picture of the rhythms God's given to us, it, it's really it's really amazing to see. It is, and I think that's another area where we've we've neglected a discipline that previous generations were better at, which is the seasons of of fasting and of um, you know within the church of of Advent and Lent, we've kind of skipped over those now. Um, but I think we've again we've probably missed something there that we we would need. 
Well, the book is called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, written by Sam Alberry. Sam, thanks for taking time to be with us today on Signposts. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us today on Signposts. Uh, be sure to check out the other uh, podcast, my solo podcast, where I'm taking questions from you about moral dilemmas that you're facing about uh, anything or really in your life, maybe something in your workplace, something at home, something in terms of the way you're trying to follow Christ. Uh, so send me your questions. You can do that either by email at questions at russellmore.com or you can record uh, your voice if you don't mind my using your voice. Uh, record it and email it uh, to us and we will use it that way. Not going to use your name unless you tell us to, so don't don't worry about that. Uh, But thanks for listening to Signpost today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and and write a review. It really helps us if you uh, write a review and and put other people uh, onto this show. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art. You'll find the show notes and some other resources on this topic for you. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost.